Our Old Testament reading today is from Hosea 8, 1 through 5. Set the trumpet to your lips. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord, because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. To me they cry, My God, we, Israel, know you. Israel has spurned the good. The enemy shall pursue him. They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. With their silver and gold, they made idols for their own destruction. I have spurned your calf, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? It is good for us to be exposed to scripture. And I used to joke years ago with friends about, you know, um, asking the Lord to give me a verse of the day, sort of, you know, eeny, meeny, miny, mo. put my finger and open it up, and it said something like, I will utterly destroy the remembrance of the Amalekites. <clears throat> and I would joke about that as a way to say, you need some type of game plan for reading the Bible so that that doesn't happen. But now, all these years later, I feel like uh, the Word of God is still powerful, um, no matter what you read. Um, and of course, the verse this morning that Natalie read, our Old Testament verse, it was a reference to, um, a reference, cross-reference to the passage we're reading this morning in Matthew. We're reading two passages in Matthew, and this is a part of our series on pursuing personal holiness called Becoming Like Jesus. And this is our fourth sermon, and originally we had planned that we would do about six sermons, and then after that we're, we'd be at Easter, so we're three weeks out from Easter, but um, I feel... Uh, and I'm praying about continuing this series on personal holiness just because it's, it's such a big topic and it's everywhere in Scripture. So let's read Matthew 5, 17 through 20, and then we'll skip ahead to Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then flip forward to Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day... Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is God's word. Father, we take a moment briefly to pray for the unction and anointing of your spirit to guide and lead us this morning. And and open our hearts to your truth that we might be convinced and convicted of its power and meaning and relevance to our lives as the world around us changes so rapidly. Your word is the same forever. It never changes. 
Ground us in it and transform us by it with the help and empowering of your spirit. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Imagine, if you will, at the end of time, billions of people scattered on a vast plain before God's throne. The multitudes chattering as they wait, many, in confident expectation of their eternal reward, talking about all the wonderful things they did in life, all the people they helped and how everyone liked them, and how successful they were. And as they step forward, instead of hearing words of praise and admonition and reward, instead they hear the words, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, you who made light of my commandments and taught others to do the same, I never knew you. It's a fearful thing to contemplate, isn't it? For all of man's self-congratulatory achievements and perceived goodness, a life lived in rebellion to God's moral vision for us, no matter how celebrated by the world, is a life lost eternally. Indeed, what is it profit a man to gain the world's approval and lose his own soul? As someone has recently said, you can be on the right side of history and still go to hell. The advancement of the human race, or as some might call it, our social evolution, has made some strides. We've become more diplomatic. It has been proven that over the years, wars have decreased and overall violence around the globe has fallen off dramatically, although you wouldn't believe it by watching the nightly news. Global poverty is at an all-time low. There are measurably less people starving today than any other time in human history. Global relief organizations and charities have steadily withered food disparities over the last hundred years. And science and medicine have made huge leaps forward. Each year, the physical suffering caused by disease and illness is exponentially reduced. But for all of that human advancement and technological achievement, we have gone backward in one specific area. As a society, we have no unifying moral vision for life. And this is partly the result of our abandonment of the idea that we will all one day stand before a holy God in judgment. We're too sophisticated for that. We're too clever for that. We don't, we don't really believe that anymore. In fact, that idea that we will all stand before the judgment of God one day is so utterly foreign as to make it unintelligible to a culture like ours. And so we grow increasingly unsteady as the moral ground beneath us keeps shifting. And indeed, it shifts very quickly now. It used to be every 10 or 20 years it felt like the moral ground beneath us shifted, but now from year to year, I mean, it is unstable, it feels like. The tectonic shifts are happening quicker and faster. 
And so things change quick, but Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Scripture tells us he doesn't change. The moral vision of the New Testament is laid out most explicitly by Jesus himself. But his own personal holiness was a matter of controversy during his own lifetime. Jesus frequently violated traditional social mores. He challenged arbitrary taboos and man-made traditions, many of which had nothing to do whatsoever with actual holiness. You can think about our own culture in the same way. There are some things maybe in the last 50 or 60 years that were cultural taboos that weren't necessarily forbidden in Scripture. I am currently watching a series, a docu-series on prohibition. And before prohibition became a law, there was a growing temperance movement for about 100 years in America. And... um, there's an interesting backstory to that. Uh, Americans drank about five times more and spent about five to ten times more money on alcohol um, before prohibition than we currently do today. That's surprising, isn't it? You'd think we'd spend more today, but we don't. But far from being morally lax, Jesus broadened and even deepened the commandments. We tend to think of Jesus as sort of like he lightened up. It's like, hey, take it easy. You know, you, you don't have to be perfect. It's okay. It's no big deal. But Jesus actually deepened and broadened the commandments and often raised the standard for holy behavior because for him, it was not just about mere outward compliance, but authentic, heartfelt obedience. And this is what Jesus was getting at when he says in the passage we just read, except your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. At first blush, that's a a scary statement because we all know how much the Pharisees cared about the commandments of the law. And at first glance, we might think, well, it's impossible then. But what Jesus was talking about is that outward actions of obedience aren't enough. It's the heart that matters, the heart behind obedience. The heart behind our holiness is what matters to Jesus. And Jesus' most explicit moral teaching is found in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. A couple of big sections here, but I want to read them to sort of give us some context about what I mean that Jesus cared not just about the commandment, but the heart behind it. Matthew 5, 21, you have heard it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. In other words, if your brother is angry, your sister is angry with you, go and be reconciled to them 
and then come and offer your gift. In Matthew 5, 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart, and vice versa for women with men. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Jesus cared deeply about the commandments. He cared deeply about personal holiness, but he realized that mere outward compliance without a heart behind it, a heart that cared about God, was just going through the motions. These two sections of Scripture traverse the seventh and eighth commandments, murder and adultery, serious, serious offenses, respectively. And the Pharisees saw themselves as holy, boasted in their innocence from these two most grievous sins, right? And most of us probably feel the same way. Well, I know I sin, but I, I don't do those things. I, I, don't, I don't murder people. You know, I don't commit adultery. But Jesus presses deeper and says, but what about your heart? Where is your heart? Is your heart guilty? The heart behind murder, Jesus is getting at, is anger and contempt and hatred. I suspect that many people, if that is the measuring stick by which murder is gauged, many more people would be guilty. 1 John 3.15 says, whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And the heart behind adultery is lustful desires. James 1 and 14 says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own lust. Then lust, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. It all begins in the heart. And this is where Jesus begins. The life of holiness begins in the heart of holiness. Holiness starts and ends in the heart. From the heart proceeds actual sins. Look at what Jesus says, Matthew 15 and 19. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. That's a very, very important verse. Because if we are prone to say, and maybe you are not, but... I felt like I grew up in the church and I grew up as a Christian and I was sort of prone to say when bad things happened that, you know, it was the devil, it was the devil, it was the devil, it was the devil. You know, the devil did it or the devil made me do it. And I suspect that it's easier to blame everything on the devil because it is much harder to look in the mirror and say, actually, it was my wicked heart. For out of the heart, the human heart, proceeds evil thoughts murder, adultery, 
sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Years ago, I heard a joke that someone said, the devil is somewhere in a corner crying, being blamed for things he didn't do. The Bible uses the word heart primarily to refer to the ruling center of the whole person, the spring of all desires. The heart is seen as the seat of the will and intellect and feelings, the character or the personality, and we, we would not be wrong to say that the heart refers also to the mind. In other words, the heart and the mind are approximate modern terms for each other. Like the conscience, as we talked about several weeks ago, the battle for holiness involves our inner self, the heart and the mind. Sins are conceived first in the mind. It is the mind that has to be renewed, and it is not enough to renew the mind once. As if we repent of our sins, we place our faith and trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior who died for our sins, and then we never have to revisit our mind or heart again. That's not true. It has to be done regularly. There is maintenance that needs to be done on the mind and on the heart because we are daily exposed to the wickedness around us. Images, thoughts, ideas, conversations, philosophies, political ideologies, the barrage of things that are godless that hit us every single day. Sins are conceived first in the mind, and so it is the mind that has to be renewed. The meditations and affections of the heart are given life in the mind. And even when we don't carry out the sinful act, the mind can sin. We all know that, don't we? We all know that sometimes we think about things that we would be ashamed to share with one another. And of course, my purpose this morning is not to shame anyone. We all have plenty of that. But the idea is to recognize where do evil deeds come from? Where does where, does the, the thing, where do the things that militate against the holiness God wants from us, where does it come from? It comes from the mind. What are some ways the mind sins? One is sins of remembering. We can sin in our mind by cherishing the memories of sins past. Or sometimes... We are not willfully trying to conjure up old sinful behaviors, but they bubble up to the surface. And if we're not careful, we'll find ourselves reveling and engaging in those things we once did. And so there are sins of remembering. There are sins of scheming, plotting sins in the future, thinking about ways that we might be able to carry out some wicked or lustful or sinful behavior. The mind sins through sins of imagining, dreaming up sinful ideas, thinking of things that we know violate our conscience. 
So what do we do? How do we counter the sinful inclinations of the mind and pursue the path of holiness? That's the real question, right? We want to, we want a game plan. Give us a game, give, give us a plan of action, Jordan, right? Like, yes, we're all guilty. What do we do about it? The first thing we need to know as we pursue the path of holiness is we need to, number one, watch over our heart. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. It's easy to confess unintentional sins or sins of omission, you know, what we forget to do, and in some ways those are lesser sins. Now some some say, well, all sin is the same. Mm, Yes and no. All sin is the same in that it's all unrighteousness before God, but in the Old Testament when God gave the law to ancient Israel, he made a distinction between Omission, sins of omission, things that we should do but we neglect or forget, and then high-handed rebellion. And so it is easy to confess the unintentional things we do. They don't feel so bad to us. They don't convict our hearts as deeply. Oh, Lord, help me to love my neighbor better. Or, Lord, you know, I forgot to, you know, I forgot to pray or, or something. But the sins of our thought life, the sins that we actively engage in in our mind are soul coloring. They are character damaging. Again, as I said a moment ago, actual sins that we do start in the mind. They don't just come out of nowhere. And they're damaging to our character because they work so directly against the conscience and the will And so dealing with them honestly and thoroughly is one of the most difficult aspects of mortifying our sins. And we talked about that, didn't we? Putting to death our sins, mortification, a doctrine that's now on life support that once was a vibrant doctrine among Christians for centuries. The idea that the daily Christian walk and struggle is the act and habit of putting to death what is evil in us. Temptations and sins, mortifying, crucifying, putting to death, sin. Here's an application point. To watch over your heart and mind, we have to take inventory of the sins that keep coming up in your mind over and over again. Take inventory of those things. I'm talking about getting serious about holiness. Write them down. Write down and admit the things that you struggle with. Sometimes it's hard to do that, right? If you've ever talked to someone who's ever gone to like Narcotics Anonymous or Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, the first thing you have to do is admit you have a problem. There's wisdom there, isn't there? To be able to get any help or move forward, you first have to recognize, I struggle with this. I struggle with that. This is something in my mind that keeps coming up over and over again. This is an issue. This is a problem. And as addicts know, you can't really get any help if you're in denial. 
So take inventory of the sins that keep coming up in your mind over and over again. If you really want to get serious about holiness and mortifying sins, you have to be honest about the things you struggle with. Write them down. So watching over your heart starts with first knowing the things you keep returning to in your thought pattern that are sinful. Okay? Secondly, confess and forsake the sin. 1 John 1, 8 and 9 says, If we confess our sins, then God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so the life of holiness is a life of constant confession. And it's one of the most important aspects of our corporate worship. It's why we do it every Sunday. Almost, almost every Sunday we come together, we confess our sins. And there's a reason for that. We recognize that, yes, we have been forgiven in Christ, but we still continue to commit actual sins. And the heart that is toward God... The heart that is pursuing God is always aware that we fall short. The life and habit of holiness is a life of constant confession. It's one of the most important things we can do. But it also needs to happen privately as well. It happens corporately together, but we need to do it privately. It is no small thing that Jesus said in the Lord's Prayer that we ought to say, forgive us our debts, forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who have sinned against us. So we confess the sins of our thought life, whatever sins we might be harboring, sins of immorality, sins of anger towards someone, sins of vengeance, sins of covetousness or whatever, confess them to God. And repent and turn from those things. That's what the word repent means. Somebody say, what's the difference between confession and repentance? Well, confession is naming something. Repentance, the Greek word metanoia, is to turn away from something. So we confess it, we name it, God, I did this, or forgive me for this. And then we turn. In the Spirit's power, we are enabled to turn away from sin. To repent and turn from those things, ask for forgiveness. Here's an application point. The holy life is shaped by daily confession and repentance. A holy life is shaped by daily confession and repentance. These are disciplines. I hope you recognize that. You know, maybe this is not like, you know, a part of our Christian life, there are fun things, and there are other things that are less fun. that belong to Christian duty. The discipline of discipleship, that's what a disciple is. It is one who has disciplined themselves and is disciplining themselves. And this is a discipline. It is a spiritual, godly discipline to do these things. But you will find, I'm confident, that if you get in the habit of this, you will learn to love it because you will grow from it. You'll see the benefit of it, like anything that's good for you. So the holy life is shaped by daily confession and repentance. Number three, give yourself wholly to the word of God. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of the joints and of the marrow. 
and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, really, the word of God can do that? Yes. It's powerful. It's not just printed words on a page. It's supernatural. It is empowered by God's very Holy Spirit. The word of God is living. It's active. It's hard to win the battle in your mind against temptation when there is no weapon to fight. In Ephesians 6, when we're instructed to take with us, take upon us the whole armor of God, above all, we're supposed to take the sword of the Spirit, which is what? The Word of God. It is your weapon for daily holiness. The Word of God. It's passe now in our culture, right? Nobody cares about the Bible, sadly, right? But it's powerful. It helps us, it equips us to fight temptation. Scripture has a, a supernatural impact on the heart. It convicts you when you read it, when you know it. It stirs your heart. It informs and it guides the conscience. A conscience informed by the word of God is sensitive to wickedness. It is sensitive to things that are contrary to the heart and law of God. A conscience informed and equipped with scripture is well suited to fight temptation. And the word of God critiques your sinful desires. And so when you find yourself in your mind and in your heart going down some road as you think about something, the word of God is speaking, right? The word of God is convicting. The word of God is moving in you. David said famously, your word, O Lord, have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. Are you hiding the word in your heart? Do you know the word? Are you giving yourself wholly to the word of God? It's quick, it's powerful, it's living, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, and it discerns the thoughts and intents of the heart. Wow, what a statement. The word washes and renews, the Bible even says it regenerates our mind. It renews us, it cleanses us daily. It's kind of like, you know, the mind is like a lint roller. It little sticky, those little sticky sheets, it just picks up everything it's exposed to throughout the day. And the next morning it needs to be washed and renewed and regenerated. The mind needs daily exposure to the word of God. If you don't have a daily reading plan, get one. If you're not a reader, listen to the Bible. The word insulates and strengthens the heart with truth and righteousness. It's not the only thing we can do, but it is a very important tool in the toolkit for personal holiness. And number four, be ruthless with your sin. Hate it. Be ruthless. Let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no, none, 
No provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Not, well, you can make some, right? I mean, this is a verse that speaks to the ruthlessness we ought to have. And I just want to say, like, there are some things we should hate. There are some things we should fiercely, viciously attack, ferociously, and that's our sin. How do we do that? By making no provision for it. It's already hard enough to be holy, but when we make provision for our sin, when we leave certain vestiges of things in our life that we know tempt us and cause us to stumble, we're foolish. So be ruthless with sin. If there are things that aren't helping your effort to walk a holy path, eliminate it. Don't think twice about it. Stop exposing yourself to activities or images or conversations or ideas that provoke evil thoughts and lead to temptation. Now for each of us, that's going to be a different thing. For some of us, it may be a subscription to, you know, some cable network or something. I don't know. I have never been able to have a subscription to HBO. I'm not, don't hear me saying, if you have a subscription to HBO, you're evil. Don't hear me say that. But for myself, I, I, HBO's got some good stuff on there, but I've just, I've never, there have been times where I th- I've thought about it, but when I see the programming on there, it, 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 it weakens me. It, it does not support my spiritual strength. And whatever that thing is for you, it may not be that, it may be, Websites you look at, it may be magazines you read, it may be people you talk to, it may be radio stations you listen to, it may be the ads that pop up on your homepage, it may be places you go, maybe relationships you have with other people. For each person, it might look a little different, but be ruthless with things that cause you to stumble. Job said, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look at that which tempts me. Make a covenant with your eyes or your ears or whatever sensation leads you to wicked thoughts. Refuse to feed the tendencies that draw your imagination into sinfulness. Now just to backtrack a little bit, some of you may have a subscription to, I feel bad about the HBO thing. You may have a subscription to HBO and it doesn't bother you, so don't hear me saying you're bad if you got a subscription to HBO. But refuse whatever the source of those, that feed is, the thing that feeds the tendencies that draw your imagination to sinfulness. Get rid of it. Cut it out. Be ruthless with it. And this is what Jesus meant when he figuratively said, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Jesus said that. (laughs) Yeah, Jesus said that. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Good advice from the master, isn't it? Whatever it is, get rid of it. Cut it out of your life. Number five, pray fervently. We talked about this in our 
series on prayer, but it's good to refresh here. Mark 14, 38. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. This is a recognition. This, this may be one of the most important verses for your daily Christian walk and pursuit of personal holiness. You need to watch and pray. It takes maintenance. It takes work. We have to watch, be watchful, prayerful, mindful, not to enter into temptation. It's always lurking at the door, isn't it? Temptation is always like around every corner. And just when you think you've sort of conquered something and you're feeling really squeaky clean, you know, you find something new or different right there waiting for you. The Spirit's willing, right? The part of you that God has placed in you that corresponds to his truth, it wants to do the right thing. But our flesh has not been perfected yet, has it? It's weak. It is prone to weakness. It is prone to giving in to temptation, and so it needs to be strengthened with prayer. Recently I said that, you know, a person does not just pray, Lord, take away all of my sins and deliver me from all temptation, and then it happens and you walk into instant, perfect, you know, perfection, sanctification, and holiness. But prayer is important because it does tune you into God's holiness. There is something that happens. I like, you know, say the word magical. There's something, you know, kind of magical about prayer that even if you don't always feel that powerful connection in prayer, you are connecting to the heart and holiness of God himself. Prayer is something that's available to us as a maintenance for our souls because in it we commune with God. We commune with God in prayer. And prayer is also an in-the-moment resource when we feel temptation's pull. In other words, in the moment you feel temptation, you can right there say, Lord, I'm feeling tempted. Help me right now. Send your spirit. Help me this very moment. And you know something? When you do that, it's very hard to carry through with a temptation when you've just talked to God. I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's harder. It's harder when you've just asked for help with a temptation you're experiencing in that moment to continue through with it because now you've just recruited God into that very experience and into that very moment. There's something about hearing yourself Express the desire to overcome temptation that actually helps you overcome. It's like talking to yourself, hearing yourself pray, Lord, I'm feeling tempted right here. Help me. Now, that works for many, many situations, but the Bible says flee fornication. And so if you find yourself in a situation where you're tempted to do that, the Bible says, no, you need to get up and leave. And that may be appropriate for certain temptations, where you need to literally get up and walk out the door and get away from whatever that thing is. I'm just trying to give us practical tools to daily, the daily battle for holiness. And, you know, sometimes I think we fail because we think about these things sort of in the abstract and not realize that actually a lot of this is just very practical. 
There are just daily habits and practical tools for us to walk in holiness. And it takes work. It's hard work. Holiness is not easy. Number six, and this is last, pursue true fellowship. James 5.16, therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. True Christian fellowship is the acknowledgement that it is not good to be isolated. God has not called us as sort of individual atomized persons to live out our life of faith. We have been called together as a community, as the body of Christ. We're individual members, but we're part of the same body. And when we neglect the fellowship and coming together with each other, we are spiritually weaker, not stronger. We're not meant to be isolated. We're meant to pursue holiness in community together. And when we do that, when we pursue true Christian fellowship, we avail ourselves to the blessings and the benefits of Christian community like mutual encouragement, like accountability. When true fellowship is present, we can share sin struggles with each other and glean strength from one another when there is that relational trust between each other. When you know that I love you and you love me, and we exist not to judge one another, but to help each other in this walk and in this battle against temptation. It has been incredibly powerful and important for me. I've got friends from seminary that I get together with once a year. We go on a little three-day retreat. We were close. There was five of us. We're all in pastoral ministry now. And... We get together, and I remember naming something that was a a struggle to them. And they repeated it back to me. And when I heard it repeated back to me from them, I shuddered. And they all warned me with stern reproof and love. And it, it kept me. It kept me from giving into that temptation. And I look back on it as this, this moment, this example of the power of fellowship and confessing to another, one to another. They were able to give me warnings and I heeded those warnings and I was so grateful for it. It's not a good thing when you don't have anyone to confess to. It's not a good thing when you don't have any kind of trust. And you know, there's something about, you know, our modern sort of middle-class culture that militates against that. We're afraid of what people will think of us. We have an image or a career to care about or maybe our standing in the community. And so we do, and it's true, you can't just tell everybody everything, but you do have to find, this is what the church is for as the body of Christ, for mutual edification and encouragement. Maybe you wouldn't share your sins with everybody in the church, but you do find a small group of people that you can connect with. Maybe it's your connect group. Maybe it's a brother or a sister you meet with a couple times a month for coffee or a phone call or a Zoom now, you know. We have to pursue true Christian fellowship. 
When it's present, we can share sin struggles with each other and gain strength from one another. Are you watching over your heart and taking inventory of what tempts you? Are you confessing and forsaking your sins in daily confession? Are you giving yourself wholly and completely to the word of God? I don't mean perfectly. I don't know that anyone would do that. But giving ourselves time and time again to subject our wayward hearts to God's word and all of its power. Are you ruthlessly dealing with your sin like your life depends on it? Or are you making provisions for the flesh? Are you praying fervently? And are you pursuing true Christian fellowship with others who can strengthen you and make you accountable? Now, those questions weren't made, meant to make you feel guilty because you're not doing them. Those questions are meant to encourage you. Here are some resources, practical things you can do to pursue holiness in the daily habits of your daily life. This is the path of personal holiness. is isn't the, isn't the only thing in the next few weeks we'll talk about more things, but these are some, okay? These are some things that you can implement today, starting this week. It's a long and rocky road, but it's a road that can be walked victoriously by grace. Let's pray. Father, may you strengthen our hearts, O God, with the power of your spirit to be the faithful people that you have called us to be. We know that you've declared us holy in Christ. And definitively and positionally, we are holy. We are your saints, your holy ones. We are your people. And at the same time, you call us to pursue personal and practical holiness. May our hearts burn for the holiness of God. May we ruthlessly attack our sin and cut out any source of temptation. Help us to be realistic about this and honest and realize that there are things that we, each of us, that we allow in our lives that don't strengthen us but weaken us. Help us to hate our sins more than we hate the sins of others, lest we be puffed up in self-righteousness and judgmentalism. We look to you in the power of your son Jesus Christ with whom we are united by faith, knowing we have received all of the benefits of that union. And so, Lord, we hopefully, confidently pray with expectant hope for strength to do this. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.